0: Welcome back to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina, designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. Reverend Squires is the pastor of counseling here at First Presbyterian Church, and I am Josh Fleming, the pastoral intern for the college ministry. Today's episode begins a new series discussing the Westminster Confession of Faith and Counseling. Today we'll be taking a look at Chapter 1 and how it applies to the world of counseling. If you have any comments or questions about our show, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can find all of our contact info on our website at firstprescolumbia.org or download the First Presbyterian Church app. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and to those around you. Let's get to the conversation
1: welcome back to one a it has been a while since we have recorded anything and i am excited as we begin this new series i'm joined today by two joshes and a mark josh fleming our pastoral intern in college fleming thanks for being here oh great to be here thank you for having me a wonderful voice that most of you will recognize who left us last year but is returning if only digitally Josh Adair, Minister of Discipleship for First President Hattiesburg. Adair, welcome
2: back. Good to be back, Josh, and good to hear your voice as well.
1: Man, good to hear your voice. And my new intern in biblical counseling, Mark Kapper. Mark, thanks for being here.
3: Hey, hey, thanks so much, Josh, for having me on with you guys. I'm uh, really looking forward to this.
1: Okay, so speaking of the this, Josh Fleming, you had an idea for what you thought we might be able to pick off with this new series. Why don't you explain where we're going. Absolutely. As I was thinking about a content idea for 1A,
0: one thing I know a lot of us who are in sort of the Reformed evangelical circles, we we really like our confessions, we like our uh, doctrinal standards, and we appreciate them maybe primarily as that, as doctrinal standards and summaries of theology. But I thought it might be fun and interesting to take a look at how something like the Westminster Confession of Faith speaks to us from a counseling standpoint, and mm. how it might, in a sense, pastor us, even as it's exposing us to timeless truths of God's Word. Yeah. So, yeah, that was sort of the idea. And I'm really excited to talk with you guys about it, learn some about it. And, you know, it, it's it's one of those things that, as we think about the Westminster standards, they're, at this point, several hundred years old. And so the question might be, well, are they relevant for us in our daily lives, mm. At all here as Christians in the 21st century, and and, what, and how can it provide categories for us to faithfully follow Jesus in the various trials we face in life? So yeah, that was sort of the idea. Yeah, I'm um, happy to in, engage in this discussion with you guys. Any thoughts as we're getting going?
1: Yeah, you know what some may not know is that the Westminster confession of faith was the tool that the lord used to get me into his word that i might be converted oh, yes during I've a period experience. of suffering of all things mm. so you're asking about counseling and you're asking about the westminster confession and how do these things come together well i lost a dear friend of mine due to an overdose and mm. in the midst of that this guy who was going to rts who knew that i was kind of a curious guy as i was beginning to ask questions about what does it mean for there to be no longer my friend who lives among me or among us? He gave me the Westminster Confession. So wow. I think I think you might be interested in this, right? Wow. Now wow. who does that? That yeah. it seems a like an interesting choice. Right. Yeah. Who who does that? But See, it was actually mm. key for me. And it was key because it not only drove me into scripture because I got the copy that had the scriptural proofs. Right. right? Mm. So it wasn't just man's word. I was able to track with it how it aligned with what scripture purported itself to be Mm. and no one had got me into scripture before Mm. but it also gave me very good clear and helpful categories categories like providence
3: Mm.
1: where god is sovereign and he is in control over all of these things it gave me a list of who god was people could often say god is you know love or god is something that's very nebulous but the second chapter of the westminster Uh, Confession on who God is with this litany of words that describe his character Mm -hmm. brought me to tears. I literally wept as I read that particular chapter because finally someone could tell me who god was in a reliable way and it also revealed my need for him my sinfulness and then you know from there also sanctification and growth so it was it became very real and and uh, an incredible tool in the midst of pain and suffering for me so i think the westminster confession is actually a really good counseling tool (laughs) we don't use it you know we don't we don't i don't assign it very often in the counseling room um but i use it and the theology that it teaches because all it is is a systematic way of bringing together the concepts the bible itself is concerned with hmm. and it does it in a way that helps us have that theology kind of like the the scaffolding behind what I'm saying in the counseling room hmm. and, and 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 therefore is used quite regularly if people don't even know it
0: that's fascinating. I think I've heard you tell that story before, but I'd forgotten how powerfully the Lord had used this in your life. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be too much of a surprise, though. I mean, we, we know the, the men who wrote the standards were not, for the most part, were not ivory tower theologians. They mm-hmm. were They were regular pastors, right? I mean, these are mm-hmm. men who loved their congregations and wanted to see them follow the Lord faithfully, and they came together to to put these documents together. I'd love to jump right into uh, the the confession itself and, and get going on the first chapter. You sure. mentioned, obviously, the second chapter the uh, where we talk about God, yep. uh, who he is, what he is like, but mm-hmm. there's actually a chapter that comes before that in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I'd like to think about that. Particularly, it's just interesting that there is this chapter concerning Scripture that comes first. And, you know, here we are in the 21st century, and we're considering a document, you know, written texts, revelation of God, you know, 2,000 years old and older, you know, going back to the Old Testament. Mm. And that's where the divines want us to start. They want us to consider uh, the truths of Scripture. And, and sometimes I think there are people in our society who would say it's almost laughable that we would look to a text, an ancient text, for any sort of guidance in our life. But that's where that's where the uh, the standards begin. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. What is the significance, do you guys think, of the divine's beginning with
2: Scripture? I, I just think it's really important because it. I remember in the Theology of the Westminster Standards class that we took with Derek, uh, his statement that essentially what they're doing here is they're starting with a quote from Hebrews that like
0: Mm.
2: all of, all of scripture uh, at various times and in sundry manners, like it is the Lord who revealed himself to us because what they were saying in this is that essentially it's impossible for us to actually know God unless he speaks to us himself. Like there's Mm. this transcendent view of this God that stands behind reality itself. And unless he speaks to us, because of the state of our sin, the state of the fall in our sin, how we have so rejected him, unless he's the one who actually begins to speak to us, it's impossible for us to really know him. And I think this is something that our world kind of, when it talks about the absurdity of why would you look for an ancient document, uh, or, or even like, why would you look to scripture? Our world almost acknowledges intrinsically the idea of the absurdity of God making himself known. Our world also is desperate to hear and make himself known. And this is one of the reasons I love the standards is because they start with this sort of idea that unless God actually speaks to us, we can't really know him. Like he's got to be the one to reveal himself to us. He's got to be the one to tell us what he's like. And oh, good news. The scriptures actually tell us that he's the gracious God who condescends to reveal himself to us so that we might actually know Him and glorify Him? I mean, that's that organizing sort of question at the beginning of the Shorter Catechism, what's the chief demand to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever? As I think about the practice that I have very limitedly experienced in the counseling room with folks, it's like people really want to know how to know God and enjoy Him and glorify Him with their lives, at, at least God's people do. And we have a God who's speaks to us and tells us what he's like Mm. so that he doesn't just assume things of us, but he actually condescends to to hold our hands and come alongside us and to begin to actually tell us what he's like so that we can know him and really enjoy him like we were meant to.
1: Yeah. I think that is one of the beauty of Calvin's analogy of a parent babbling for their child. Uh, That's what, that's Mm -hmm. what God is doing. When he gives a scripture, if you've ever had a child, you know that when, when they first begin to utter, they utter these noises that Melanie and I used always used to call pterodactyl noises, Oh yes, <laughs> right? We call them pterodactyl baby. They don't mean anything necessarily. And the best way to encourage a child to talk more and to be verbal is to make those same noises back to them. It's not to speak words. They they're going to pick that up and hear that as you talk to people around you, and even as you talk to them. But as they make these noises, you make the noises back to them, and that encourages them in their two way communication. And God is doing the same same thing. He is using this babble that's so far beneath Him. Mm. He doesn't need to be contained in a word. He doesn't need to be contained by language and grammar. Mm. And he is choosing to limit himself in that way in order that he might meet us where we are. Mm. That is a loving God That is right uh, there. Yeah. I
2: was going to say, for the person who's like in a counseling suite, who's asking, hey, can you help me make sense of my life? Like apart from a loving God who actually enters into reality, like, you, ha- you really just to have, like, subjective experience that can hopefully make sense of what's going on in their life outside of a God who, I remember Derek said, outside of a God who perforates reality. Like, he mm-hmm. actually breaks into time and he comes and, like, tangibly walks among us in his son Christ, but then preserves the testimony of who that God, who Christ was in the Scripture. Mm. so that we can know to the person who comes to us for help who comes to us for counsel who comes to us for wisdom see there is a wise way that you live there is a way that you can actually know this god and so
1: that's exactly right is that the the two pieces that are most observable in the counseling room one is that he loves enough to condescend and the second is is that he is the one who orients all of reality so when we're asking big mm. questions like why do i suffer why do bad things happen to good people? That it's not just this sea of opinion. You've got bedrock that you can run to. It's not always easy. It's not always fun, but it is truth, and you can find respite there. I think that's really important for people who feel overwhelmed by life. It feels like the waves are crashing down upon them, that they have some sort of sea anchor that provides stability. The other thing that I would say about that particular answer is that notice that the Westminster Divine say in diverse manner. Mm -hmm. so it's not all just do this yeah he doesn't talk to you like a demanding father who just tells you all the time buckle up and fly right Mm -hmm. there's poetry in Mm -hmm. there and poetry that is from people who are Mm -hmm. lamenting and people who are joyful there's confusion that's communicated not confusion on god's part but on believers parts where they don't understand god's providence And we see that, and we see it in narrative, and we see it in parable, and we see it in apocalypse, and all these various and diverse manners that God is using to talk to his people. And then it also means that we have to be intentional about how we read Scripture and apply it in the counseling room into our own lives, that you can't read poetry like you would read narrative, and you can't read apocalypse like you would read law. Um, we, We just have to be careful about that.
3: It's interesting to me in the context of the whole first point of chapter one there. um, It says that God chose to reveal himself and to declare his will unto the church. Skipping down, it says that he chose to commit the same wholly unto writing. So the words on the page that we have. And it says, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. What I think isn't obvious but is maybe latent in those words as well is Jesus Christ as the ultimate revelation of God. That God reveals something of himself to us through his written word. But Mm -hmm. even in the scriptures, the human authors and the divine author of scripture speak of Jesus Christ as the embodied word of God. And what does that communicate to us about our God and his love for us, that he would reveal himself to us, not just in words on a page, which are significant in themselves, that God would reveal himself in that way, but also in God-made flesh, mm. in Jesus Christ, come as one of us to to speak to us and to lead us to his Father mm. through his Spirit. Mm. Um, what a, um, mm. a beautiful picture of who our God is. Amen. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point.
2: Yeah. I think this also grants a lot of humility to the person who's doing counseling. Sometimes when some someone comes for wisdom to my office as a young pastor, I often think, what do I actually know that I can tell these people? Mm. Uh, <laughs> what authority do I have to say this? <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, and I don't know how God's truth always speaks to your suffering. And so, like, even these men who are writing this doctrine, uh, this body of doctrine, uh, to, to sort of distill scripture for us they recognized there was a great humility that God, even in revealing these truths, there was a great humility they had to say like, he's the person who actually has to uh, make clear to us. And he's the person that will make clear to us. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways. Yeah. So,
0: no, that's, that's great, Josh. And that, that kind of segues into the next topic I'd like to discuss. Uh, You mentioned what authority do you have as, as people come into your counseling office and, Um, I want to talk a little bit about what the the divines wrote about the authority of the Holy Scripture. This is in uh, 1.4. That's still in that first chapter, but the fourth point. They write that the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself and is the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. And I I guess my question now is, how does this idea of authority and resting on God's word impact and collide with sort of this modern notion of human autonomy, of of sort of self-rule, self-governance, that we see so
3: rampant in our society? What are your thoughts? I feel like I'm probably the person least equipped to answer that, but one thought that I have is I think it gives us a sense of peace, Mm. that the authority isn't mine to Mm. tell you what to do, but we have words from God to give us wisdom and instruction for life that are authoritative, and we can point our people to the Lord and to the comfort of His Holy Spirit as they engage his word for wisdom and insight into the various issues that they face from day to day. Mm, that's good.
1: Yeah, I think you're fighting an uphill battle in today's society mm. because authority in and of itself is opposed to a postmodern worldview. Mm. Right. In in anything that's outside of oneself, the postmodern worldview would say that I am the authority on me and there's no one else or nothing else that can be the authority on Mm -hmm. me, the more you lean into that, the more you end up anxious, afraid, sad, Mm -hmm. hopeless, because we know our own limitations. We see our own mistakes. We see it live itself out in our vocations and in our relationships. And so to know that there is something that has authority, and it's the it's the authority of a designer and creator that knows all mm. is a safe harbor. Yes. Now, again, in, in, similar to what I said earlier about God's word, it's not always easy, right? Like right. He, he breaks yeah. us yeah. in mm-hmm. ways with his word. He, he, mm. he says that the word is sharper than any two-edged knife able to divide bone and marrow. And the reason that that analogy is used is because you can't divide bone and marrow. Mm. Like, like at least it mm. certainly not with the technology they had at the time. So it was able to do that, which isn't able to be done by human hands and human technology. Mm.
0: That's funny, as you said that, I was like, well, who said anything about bone and marrow? Why are we dividing that? But it's like, well, I thought we were talking about the reading God's word, but you're right. Yeah. It, it, that is the analogy the author of Hebrews uses. It's it's, it's cutting deep.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. So the the authority Ooh. to be able to give oneself over to that sort of authority is not easy, and I don't want to make it sound like to any listener that, oh, well, you know, these four pastors, pastors in training, It's just easy to sit yourself under the word and glorify what it says. No, for all of us, we do sin and thought and word and deed every single day. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to give yourself over to that authority. And yet, it is the safety. It is the place that you can go to. The more and more you try to be that authority for yourself, the more everything feels topsy turvy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. I can give you an anchor, I can give you a place where there's safety. It's it's going to be painful at times, though. Mm-hmm. But well worth it. Well worth it, but painful.
0: That's good. I mean, we are all willing. I mean, in some sense, people do a lot of things that involve pain and or are on some level suffering or giving up something yep. because they know there will be a good benefit on the other side. Right. Um, I think just a simple analogy, you yep. know, the, the working out in the gym, you know, people do that. Uh, not myself but people do that oh, um, i don't yeah, <laughs> I, No, idea. i hear that there are people in the gyms I, I, i've never seen one but uh, no uh, i, I hear the
1: spell jim <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, uh,
0: he's down the hall no yeah. but but people are willing to submit themselves to things that they yep. know are going to be uncomfortable for the moment because they know it has there's a goal in view. And I think as we think about, uh, you know, Josh Adair, you mentioned a moment ago, the goal of our life and that how the scripture sets set out for us and the standards do as well as being to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Mm. And we see that as, as a, as a more and more, a goal that we by faith want to, to live for. I think it helps. We, it helps us understand it's, it's going to be tough, but it's worth pursuing.
1: Yeah. And as you think about the authority of God's word, it also means that there is a submitting to god's word and so often we hate that we hate that word as a culture submit mm. and we put it in most often in our circles in terms of husband and wife right um or parent children so we tend to think about authority structures in those relationships but we don't push it out into look we need to be those submitting to God's word. That's what his authority does. And in the same way that a good husband should be protecting his family and his wife, good counsel, lovingly, the word does the same for us. Mm. And and if we're not willing to submit to God's word, we can't be too upset when people don't submit to us. Mm. Right? The degree to which yeah. we submit to God's word is the degree to which there is safety when other people submit to us as well.
2: Mm. Yeah. And it's almost like in the twin realities that these first two points that we've talked about, when you hold those in tension, it actually becomes easier to submit. Like, like it's, it's not just that God is a God who graciously condescends as a loving father to his people to make and reveal and redeem salvation, or redeem them to salvation and reveal himself to us. Uh, but it's also that he's a king. And if you know that he's a father who's condescended, you can actually trust him as a king who will rule you in a gracious and humble way. And he actually has a really good intention for your life. And that intention for your life can't be recognized in any other place. And in a world where we want to like socially construct our sense of ourselves, like we, we pull it from people or things or different cultures that we're a part of, this tells us that like, this God who requires everything of us and requires us to define ourselves as He has said we're to be defined. It's mm. also a God who we can trust to define us in a way that will actually help us flourish. Yeah. So,
1: one last thing here as we begin to wrap this up, I just want to say that this is a part of the communication cycle with God, right? So, uh, yes. one of the things mm. that it talks about is God declaring His will to the church, that it is an act of revelation of Himself. There's a way in which God speaks to us. And so many people want to talk about hearing God's voice, and I don't hear him. How do you hear him? Well, it's not some tiny voice that you hear audibly in your head. It is God's word. God's word is his communication to us, and our prayer is our communication back to him. Mm. And so when people want to be in communion with God more, know him more, feel more intimately connected with him, the first place you go is to scripture, because that's his word to your life even now.
3: That's so good. And the beautiful thing of that, too, Josh, if I can add quickly, is so often We look at Scripture and we read some of these stories of the Old Testament where God reveals himself personally to somebody or speaks to somebody, and we wish, oh, if only that could be me, if only I could have that one-on-one direct interaction with God. Well, the fact of the matter is that in those moments, even when God revealed himself directly at that point it was actually a much smaller revelation of God to that person, to that individual, than what we have at this moment. Mm. Because especially in the Old Testament, they didn't even have Christ come yet in the human flesh. And yet we have the whole testimony of the entire body of Scripture. And so instead of longing for some sort of mystical, uh, direct word from God why don't we realize what a blessing and what a gift we have in all of the revelation of Holy scripture about mm. the Lord that we, mm. that we love and serve.
2: That's good. so good. Good. Yeah.
1: Mm. Okay. Final thoughts, gentlemen, Adair, dare. Let me start with you. Any final thoughts?
2: Yeah, I, I just, we talk about the significance of, of a worldview and the reformed community and, and the consequences that our view of life in the world reaps in our everyday life. And, that's one of the things I love about this body of doctrine, is that it is something that helps us systematically consider who God is, who we are, and how we're meant to, to worship Him and glorify Him. And it, it sort of sets—it it really sets our anchor on, on the Scripture itself as a tool to help us understand what Scripture says, but it puts together some of those consequences for us in a way that first— understands God's character and then helps us to really live out of God's character and what he expects of us Uh, that's really one of the reasons I love the the confession is that it, it just helps you put together those categories in a comprehensive way so that it builds on each other and you can actually hold together all of the consequences of what God might expect because he's a good father who yes he's a king who requires everything from of you, but he's a good father who actually wants you to be able to walk with him. And and the counseling sweeps, like people need to know that God really is more concerned about their suffering and about their confusion in some ways than they are. And that's why he's gone to such great lengths to reveal mm. himself. Mm. And so that's that's just super helpful. Sorry that was a little long winded. No,
1: you're good. Fleming, any final thoughts? No
0: final thoughts other than to say thank you, gentlemen. Each of you, I've really enjoyed this. This was a lot
1: of fun, and I hope our listeners have benefited from it as much as I have. Yeah,
3: absolutely.
0: Yeah,
1: it's good. Um, my last thought for me, you know, as people think about theology and the Westminster Confession is a book of theology, and sometimes think of that as something high tower, uh, ivory tower, rather, mm. unapplicable to our daily lives. And I would say that theology should help us to know God more and love him more. It might or should, Mm. rather, create in us a sense of loving God more, and therefore we should love our neighbors more. That's Mm. always the two directions Mm. of everything that Christ is trying to teach us in his word, and by his word, is that we would love him more, and we would love those around us more. Mm. And I think the Westminster Confession helps us to do it if we're just reading it devotionally or if we're in a counseling room. So What's, I'm looking forward to this exactly. with you guys. What's more applicable than that? That's loving right. God and loving
2: uh, our neighbors. So, yeah, yep. absolutely.
1: Yep. What are,
2: I had a quick question. What are we planning on covering next time for our listeners
1: I think we're going to pick up with sufficiency next time. So we'll talk about the Ooh, sufficiency of Scripture.
2: Sufficiency.
1: And for any of those who know, like in in biblical counseling terms, this is a big this is a big issue. So maybe we'll just maybe lay out some different views on what that is. How does the Westminster Confession historically think about it, and then why is that important in mm. the counseling room?
2: That's great, oh, wonderful. Can't I look be.
1: forward to it, too, guys. All right, talk to you guys later. Thanks. All right, thanks.